All right, you guys. Well, thank you for getting in here on time or a little bit early at least. We are officially at the beginning of the end of this book that we call Judges. Samson is the last and perhaps the most famous of all the judges. Infamous may be a better word, actually, for Samson and who he is and what he's done. And I guess, actually, we could identify, really, Samuel as the last judge, as the last prophet, or he's a prophet and a judge. Yeah, Adam? Will there be a beginning of the end of the end? Sure, that'll be chapter 21. But we're in chapter 13 now, and this is the last judge that we're introduced to in the book of Judges. Again, Samuel's identified as a judge in 1 Samuel 7, but Samuel's also a prophet. Um, he's different than the rest of the judges, Samuel that is. He was a prophet just as much as he was a judge. He was a prophet in the same sort of capacity that Moses was a prophet, and not as influential and not as important as Moses, but certainly important. Not only does Samuel serve as the last of the judges leading up into the installment of the kings, he's used of God to appoint King David, and who was the final covenantal head or representative that we read of in the Old Testament, following Moses, who followed Abraham, who followed Noah, and who followed Adam. You know, all those men are covenantal representatives or covenantal heads. So Samson is the last judge in Judges, but Samuel is the last judge, but he, again, he's interesting, he's a prophet. We're not going to really look more into his story, at least on Wednesdays at least. Tonight we're considering the backstory of Samson. Samson, I keep always saying, I always throw a P in it, even when I try to spell his name, I kept putting a P in the Samson, it's just Samson. But uh, this is the beginning of his life, his birth story really. And so maybe you're inclined to think, well, you know, why should we care about these events? Why, pastors, should we care about these types of things? Why don't we just focus on the New Testament letters that tell us specifically how to live or how to not live? Or why don't we just skip some of these fine details and get to the important or the juicy parts, the more exciting parts? And well, there's three primary reasons for that. For one, if you're a Christian here tonight, this is your family history. You need to think of it like that. This is your people. Even if you can't trace a bloodline back to them, like a physical relationship, but technically you can trace a bloodline back to them, technically speaking, right? The blood of Christ is what unites us all. It's Jesus' blood, his full work of atonement that saved people before the cross, just in the same way as it saves people here now after the cross, people living today, people who will be living in the future. Uh, God accepted it as good as done from his perspective for people who lived before Jesus actually did it. But Jesus is a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. These are the events of God's people. These are the events that God ordained to come to pass as he was preparing the way to bring his son into the world to do the work of atonement, to go to the cross and redeem everyone who was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And so these aren't just historical details. This is a book, this Bible, is a book that God has pre preserved for you so that you may know these things and glorify the Lord in them. And truly, they're, it's a part of your history if you're, when you're united to Christ. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Gentile believers, Gentiles are people who aren't Jewish, he said to them in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, 12 to 13, he says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, but having no hope in the world and without God. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So again, that, that blood of Christ unites us even to these saints who were truly seeking God through Christ back at that time. And in Christ, for us today, we are no longer alienated and separated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's true that we're not under the old covenant as people were in Judges, but we're no longer strangers to it. We, we should know it. We should know what their life was like. There are principles we can devise from it that help us to glorify God today. And that brings us to point two. We do, in fact, receive instruction from these long narrative sequences. We're going to be reading 25 verses again tonight. So it's, it's again, and it's going to be next week's similar thing as well, too. It's been like that many times through Judges. Uh, Pastor Kim Riddlebarger, that's, that's a man, by the way. It's a weird man's name, I know. But Kim, Pastor Kim is a, is a man. He's, he says, it's, no, he's a white guy. Kim is his first name. Says, he says, while many Bible stories present these people as role models for Christians to emulate, the fact of the matter is these people are not role models. He's talking about the judges. He says, rather, they are living illustrations to us as how deeply sin is rooted in the human heart, including our own. Gideon, for example, is not presented in Judges as an example so that we can be Gideons. Gideon is a man who is weak in faith, who needs constant reassurance, and who uses his success in battle as the basis to establish a personal empire. Gideon is not a man to example to follow. Rather, Gideon is like a picture of us. He, it is a picture of, of, of a man who is a sinner. Um, and in this case, for Gideon and for the other judges, they are used to save Israel by God. But the grim fact is that these judges can do absolutely nothing to deal with Israel's and humankind's deepest problem. And that is our own sin, our own fallen nature. So, that brings, so, you, so we can learn from these examples, but almost in a way of, a lot of ways, not, what not to do. Thirdly, in the lives of the judges, in the calling of them, in the history of them, in the actions they perform, we are given glimpses of what Christ will do. Many of the different aspects surrounding these details are revealing Christ to us and doing so in such a way that the judges and even some of the peripheral details in the accounts that the judges live through, the things that they do, the things that they don't do, uh, they are what we would call a shadow or a type of Christ. Not a perfect revelation of Christ. It's not intended to be. It's intended to be a veiled one, one that when you know Christ, you can look back and see God's handiwork on these events. You can see God building up the faith of people now, uh, and then people then and through us now by the way that he does it. So they help us to know our Savior better. And these judges, Samson included, they are a constant reminder that God does and often does actually use men and women to accomplish his purposes. But it's going to require the God-man, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from sin and to defeat our greatest enemy, you know, death, the death that hangs over us all. And so what we'll see specifically in our text tonight is that God supplies his Savior, at his time, and all according to his plan. We see this all in the birth of Samson. And we'll do this a little bit differently tonight. Instead of just reading the whole thing and then going back and talking about it in chunks, we'll just kind of read it a little bit and then pause and deal with that and then read some more and then deal with that. So we'll go more continual. I don't think we'll do that next week, but for tonight that seems to make sense to me. So let's pray first and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word, and then we'll get to chapter 13. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for these 
stories that you have preserved. We know that these are, in fact, stories that are very important to us uh, because, for one, you have preserved them for so long. Uh, you desired for us to know them, but also because this is truly our, our history as your people. It is a reminder of, of the way that we shouldn't live and therefore even negatively from that instructing us on how we should live. And it helps us to know our Savior better as well. So give us understanding this evening, Lord. Help us to grow. Uh, we thank you for what we do know, but we pray that you would grow us all in wisdom and humility in love for you and love for one another, that you would help us all to abound in every fruit of the Spirit. And we know that these things are things that can only be accomplished by you through the means of grace that you ordain. So please use this evening to glorify yourself, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, we might notice something familiar. We read, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. We're once again told that the people of Israel did what was evil in Yahweh's sight. They disobeyed his commandments. They broke the covenant that they agreed to uphold. And for violating that covenant, these curses came upon them. Uh, we've seen that a number of times in this book already. And often, the way it often is and has been in the, in the pattern that we've seen is that it ends up being that God allows these other nations that Israel was supposed to be a light to, that Israel was supposed to be a light to, um, come in and oppress them and conquer them and persecute them and force them to do things that you know, they, they didn't want to do and abuse them and take their wealth and take the blessings that God had given to them. That was often the way that God would bring these curses upon them. Now, if you remember from the last few sermons, Israel... Uh, even though God has been raising up judges in the land, they haven't really repented and turned to the Lord and sought him in faithfulness. We, we aren't reading of the people having rest in the land anymore. Uh, that hasn't happened back since Gideon. This is a time of extended judgment in the land, and we don't actually read about the people having rest until and having peace and from their enemies surrounding them until we get to King Solomon who, of course, is you know, the son on the throne, that type of Christ, our king, the son of David, that rest that Israel was, that, that rest that Israel was enjoying at, in the beginning of the book of Judges and, and under Joshua's administration and reign, or not reign, but service of, of leadership, that rest has been temporarily paused in the Old Covenant until we see it given one more time in light of the Davidic covenant, where the son of David, the literal, actual son, Solomon, he sits on the throne as a type of the spiritual, the, the promised son of David, Christ, who will sit on the throne for eternity. But Israel will get that rest again, that peace when Solomon sits on the throne. But it's not going to happen until then. But there's more that's going on here as well. Uh, this story of Samson is going to take us all the way into the beginning of chapter 17, uh, verse 1. 17, 1 is after Samson. So four chapters, all about the life of Samson. And the book of Judges will go on to have 21 total chapters, but this verse, verse 1, chapter 13, is the last time that we're going to read that, this, that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
It's the last time we see that. The familiar refrain has just come to an end. And so it's as if the evil of Israel in the promised land has reached a high. Remember how bad it was with Jephthah. It's gotten worse. It's, it's worse. It's more widespread. And now a serious threat, a greater threat that has, has been given to discipline Israel, the Philistines. We read that the Philistines have had 40 years of oppression over Israel so far. But what we don't read is that they ever relent. Samson will begin to save Israel, verse 5. The Philistine oppression is actually going to continue on all the way through David and David and into um, you know, through Saul's reign and then into David's reign. Uh, David's reign, he's still dealing with some of the effects of it in the surrounding areas as well too. Remember who David famously killed as a young boy? Goliath. Goliath. He was from where? He was a Philistine, right? So the, 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 the oppression that Israel is facing now here under Samson is going to go on for, you know, into the kings, into the time of the kings as well. I don't know the exact time. It's hard to say. Maybe 100 years, 60 to 100 years. The uh, long. lasted until about 600 BC. Well, they're not totally done with Saul at when Solomon comes, but at Solomon they have rest at that time because we see them again. I mean, the Babylonians are essentially Philistines. They crush them. Yeah. Assyria and all them? Yeah. So, let's keep reading. There, there's, again, there's just no liberation for Israel at this point until we get to Solomon. We'll see how bad it gets for Israel uh, after chapter 17 even, and even really even in chapter 14. It's going to pick up as far as just the, the kinds of wickedness that is just prevalent in Israel now. And remember, Israel shouldn't have wickedness in it. These are supposed to be God's covenant people. These are supposed to be the people who, out of love for God and what he's done to them, redeeming them from Egypt, they're supposed to live holy lives. But not all of them were truly loving God as, as they should. Not all of them were truly saved. So in light of all that, though, the, the great mercy and faithfulness of Yahweh uh, will be more impressive, I think. And we'll see that through the rest of the book. So for now... This is God's plan at this time. So let's pick up reading again at verse 2. We'll read to verse 7. It says, There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So we're introduced to a few new people now, right? But before that, there's something to point out that's missing at this juncture. Another testimony to the wickedness of Israel at this time. Not only was verse 1 the last time that we read about Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. It's just just a given now throughout the rest of the book. 
we also are not going to read about them crying out to the Lord anymore. That's usually what happens, right? In the previous sections, the Word of God points out to us that Israel did evil inside of the Lord. They were given over to oppression. And then Israel cries out to the Lord for help. We don't read that at this point. No longer are we made to wonder if Israel as a nation is regretting the effects of their sin or if they've offended God. You know, is it true repentance or is it false repentance? Is it the sort of repentance that's just like upset because you got caught? Or is it the sort of repentance that is upset because you know you did something that you shouldn't have done and you let the Lord down in that? Remember even last time with Jephthah, even God was fed up with how they were acting. They telling them to cry out to the false gods that they were seeking instead of instead of himself and it's not that god is acting and responding like a human here Uh, he accommodates to our understanding Uh, he he accommodates to our ability to understand he's never caught off guard or he's never surprised by the things that we do or he's never in the position of having to learn something Uh, it's phenomenological language it's the language of the way that things appear God is simply showing that when Israel's actions changed in the Old Covenant, it brought about that which God, who was unchanging, said he would do when they did it. And they would then know his wrath and his judgment. But God himself would remain faithful overall to the covenant promises he made and preserve them because this is all happening for the larger purpose of revealing his son and Jesus being the greater Adam, the one who would justify us and redeem us and eventually glorify us. And so this time... There's, there's no crying out from Israel even. Israel's not even looking to the Lord. They've been under the oppression of the Philistines for 40 years, and they're not crying out collectively to Yahweh. Of course, we'd have to assume that there are some there are true believers, a remnant, the elect that are among the nation, that are praying and asking for mercy. But as a whole, as the nation, this old covenant people, they're not turning to the Lord. But God's going to act anyway. This is his story. This is his plan. And even when we see examples in Scripture of what looks like God responding, what we're seeing in those things that, that God has not only ordained the ends, he's also ordained the means by which we get to the end. The, the means by which the result comes about. It's both. His sovereignty is all-encompassing. Uh, it's a comfort to us to know that all things are from him and through him and to him as it were, as the doxology in Romans says. Now then, we're left here in this example to realize that our help is ultimately found in Yahweh. That, that, that should be coming through from the text. Our, our hope as believers today even is not in our ability to cry out to the Lord. Our, our hope, because look, they're not even crying out here at all. Our hope is in the reality that God is faithful and will fulfill the covenant promises that he promised to make a, to us in Christ. There's, there's no delusion here about why this rescue comes. There's no contribution here from Israel at all, yet God has a plan in the works. And this is a bit different, and at the same time um, similar to at least one of our previous encounters with the judge. It's different because we are see, seeing Yahweh's choice of a judge being declared and prophesied about before the judge has even been born. Right? We haven't seen that yet. More on that in a moment. It's different. We haven't been introduced to a judge in this manner before, but again, think of who God is. It's not like God 
in other accounts, searched into Israel. And he said, oh, you know what? Uh, that Othniel, he looks like he can really do a good job. So I'm going to choose him to be the judge. Or it's not like he looked into Israel and said, oh, that Jephthah, he's got a really interesting backstory that I could kind of spin to make, it, make them learn something about me. He's not, he didn't learn about it right at that time. In a sense, every judge that has ever been chosen, God has done the same thing from before they were born. He's chosen them for this and set their life up in such a way that they would be at that time, at that moment, able to do what God was going to intend to do with them. But this is different in that it's being announced to us early on here at this point. We haven't, it hasn't been announced to us like this before. This is going to be God's Savior at God's time, according to God's plan, and we're going to know the extra details to see how God's hand is working pretty early on even. Similar to another example in Judges, because this isn't the first time that the angel of the Lord has been involved, right? Uh, we know this isn't just some angel because of how the story ends, but what judge had the angel of Lord, the angel of the Lord involved as well? Do you remember? Gideon. It was Gideon, right? And I, I was saying last time that, the, that Gideon and Samson are the two judges that are given the most time, at least. Not that they're more important than these other judges are not, but they are given them the most time. And it just happens to be in both of their cases, the angel of the Lord is involved. And who did we say that the angel of the Lord was back then? Who's the angel of the Lord? God, most likely a theophany, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ, right? So that's not fully grasped by our characters yet, is it, in the verses we just read? Uh, so far, we've met a certain man of Zorah, a Danite, whose name is Manoah. And then, amazingly and surprisingly, his wife, whose name we never actually learned, but simply that she was barren. She's without a child, in other words. And actually, this woman, she's the admirable person in this story. She's the one that we should aspire to, uh, that we should see, we see a good example in. But she's without a child. And the Bible is making it clear to us again that this is God's plan of his time. So in the days when the Philistines ruled, the angel of Yahweh pays a visit to a nameless, childless woman. To God alone be the glory. Now, the idea of a barren woman isn't foreign to us, right? If we're familiar with the Bible, this idea of a barren woman and the stress and the struggle that that puts on a woman in the nation of Israel and in God's covenant people, even before the nation of Israel was a thing, uh, that's something that we should understand and be familiar with. We see this early on in Genesis with Sarah, who was barren. Uh, in Genesis 15, Abraham has a vision. Was it the angel of the Lord? Perhaps, we don't know. It doesn't tell us just as Abraham had, had a vision where God was communicating to, to him. Is it the angel of the Lord in the sense of it being the second person, a pre-incarnate, um, interacting with him? We don't know that for sure. But God declares, we'll have a son. How old is Sarah when she has a son? 90, 90 right? It's a long time before it happens. But it, God comes through with his promise. Then Rebecca has 20 years of childlessness until she has Joseph. No visitation from the angel of the Lord in that account. But we do read of God hearing her prayers and being the one to open her womb. Then after Samson, Samson's the next one. After Samson, a similar story happens with the birth of Samuel. His mom is named Hannah, and she's praying to the Lord. She's, she's barren, she's without child. She's praying to the Lord. And through a, a series of events in which Eli, the prophet, is kind of not acting very um, 
in step with the Lord's will, but that's characteristic for him anyways. Uh, but eventually he realizes that she's, you know, the Lord was hearing her prayers. And the, so Hannah eventually has a son. He opens her womb. And the result, of course, is Samuel. And then all the way in the New Testament, we read of Elizabeth, the relative of Mary, who is visited by an angel that pronounces the birth of John. And kind of similar to this, right? I mean, Elizabeth was older when it, when it happened. The, an angel, the angel announces uh, to Elizabeth and her husband, what John will do, he's going to turn the hearts of the people towards the Lord, and he must not drink strong drink and wine. Two things that we see said for Samson with a slight twist, right? There was um, a little bit, it was a little bit different for Samson because even Samson's mom couldn't drink strong drink and wine. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but I, I just love this. You see how God is operating in history past, leading up to the focal point in history, the, the birth of Jesus in such a way that people who were living during the time of John and Jesus' day would say, certainly, with John's announcement and then, and then Mary and Jesus, certainly God has done this. This is what the type of thing he's done in the past. This is the same type, sort of thing that God has done previously. This is setting their minds on, on the, the coming of God into the world and the person of Christ. And then, of course, we, we'd be remiss to, note, to not note the highlight of this shadow or type in Samson, uh, the announcement of Jesus' birth. It's not an exact parallel, of course. I mean, Mary wasn't barren. She wasn't even married at the time, but she was betrothed, and her birth was miraculous. Um, it wasn't through normal conception. Jesus' birth was not announced by the angel of Yahweh, but still an angel of God. And of course, Jesus is the greater Samson because he isn't merely going to begin to save Israel from the Philistines. Jesus is going to save all his people, people made up of every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's going to save what we might call spiritual Israel or, or true Israel. Samson is God's savior at God's time and according to God's plan, but he's pointing us to the truer and greater and better Savior, one who, unlike Samson, won't need saving himself. And he was slated to come to the world about a thousand years after this event happened, after this birth of Samson. Now, there are some things, some unique things, some interesting things that we should note about the rest of the section. Samson's given what's called a Nazarite vow, and that isn't super easy to explain, actually, as to what it is. And in some sense, it is, of course. I mean, we read the stipulations here. Uh, no getting a haircut, no drinking strong drink or wine, no eating anything un unclean. Numbers chapter 6 is where you read more about this Nazarite vow. It's where you first learn about it and you get some extra details about those aforementioned things. And then also extra detail that will be important for Samson later on in this, in this, um, the, this book, the next chapter actually, where he's not supposed to actually touch any dead animals or dead people. That's part of the Nazarite vow as well. The interesting, though, is, is why would anyone take such a vow? Well, we don't really get those details ever. Not in number six, not here. Well, here it's totally different. I mean, Samson, I'll get to this in a minute, actually. But some of the things that are associated with the Nazarite vow are, are priestly-sounding things, right? Like not eating or touching anything unclean. But the Levites, the priests of Israel at this time, they weren't commanded to do all these extra things. And also, the Nazarite vow wasn't for life. But for Samson... It's for life. It has to be lifelong, even more. It's very strict because even his mom isn't allowed to drink any wine or anything while she's pregnant. Now, I don't think that 
Israelite women were drinking a lot of strong drink and wine while they were pregnant. I don't think that's why, I don't think that's why the angel of the Lord said that at this point on this case. The point is that the consecration of the son is to begin even while he's in the womb. Because, you know, if, if what, the, what the mom eats, the baby gets, right? Mm-hmm. And so the consecration of the son is to start now from conception, not even when he's born. So the normal Nazarite vow, if you violate it, you could start over. But with Samson, that isn't even his choice. Uh, this is being thrust upon him by God. And, of course, he's a horrible Nazarite. Uh, we'll see that in the coming <laughs> weeks. He's... It's like he doesn't even care about it. Beating people with the jawbone of a donkey. A dead, which is a dead animal, right? Right. To, I know. From eating of honey out of a body. Yeah. Out of a it lion, does count. which violates two. Right. Yeah. Eating it unclean. Unclean out and of a, a dead lion, animal. and it's done. Horrible Nazarite, right? But he remains a Nazarite, and we'll see how that all works out. Um, but what were these Nazarite vows for? Uh, they're kind of a weird thing. Some commentators believe them to be special vows that a person would perhaps voluntarily engage in before a battle, before a war. And so you'd have these groups of like holy warriors, as it were. Like if it was a role-playing game or something, they would have like dope armor or a dope weapon or something like that. I don't, you know, something like that. Like what makes them, they have this extra power is what it seems like. But no one is really certain what the Nazarite vow accomplished. Now, obviously, John the Baptizer had some elements of the vow in his calling, the, the no eating anything unclean, and he had a special job to do for the Lord, but he wasn't a Nazarite in the proper sense. And we want to be careful with the notion of Jesus being under, under the Nazarite vow, by the way, too. And we read that Jesus has the title of a Nazarene, right, in Matthew chapter 2. But that's more about being where he was from, uh, from Nazareth, than it, and it has to do with him being the branch from Je- uh, Jesse, the word that is translated from Nazareth means a branch, is pointing us to Isaiah's prophecy, as well as being the fact that he was despised and rejected because Mary said, what good can come from Nazareth? You know, so it has to do with that. Plus, we also know that Jesus drank wine and he touched the dead. I mean, he brought the dead back to life even, right? So he, so he wasn't under this exact Nazarite vow, but perhaps we could think of Jesus as being a Nazarite from the angle of having a special sanctification and mission for the Lord. At the end of the day, that's what it seems like what it means to be a Nazarite, to have a special vow unto the Lord that comes with specific requirements. Jesus certainly wasn't under the specific requirements listed in Numbers 6 or here in Judges 13 that Samson had, but there seems to be some looseness with it, typically that the vow was voluntarily and for a set period of time, but with Samson, it's as if the vow chose him. And it was for life. So, and then again, the, the weirdness of the oh, calling to John the baptizer. So, the wife of Manoah notices that the angel of the Lord was special. And hopefully you saw that. When she reported the news to her husband, she called him a man of God. So the angel of the Lord looked like a man, a physical being, Right? Must have been the case. But she notices that his appearance was also very awesome. Like an angel of God is what she says. She doesn't get it totally right. She says an angel of, excuse me, an angel of Elohim, right? Just the, the, the general name for God, not the proper given name of God, not Yahweh. But she's close. And she had the foresight to not ask this being any details, but simply to take his word as gospel, as it were. To take his word as truth, as being from Yahweh. 
But Manoah, he wants to know for himself. So he prays to the Lord as well. Let's pick it back up at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us so that we are to do, excuse me, and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I have said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded to her, let her observe. Bless you. So it's Manoah who prays to the Lord, but God, Elohim in our text, in his wisdom decides to send the messenger, this time called the angel of Elohim, uh, to his wife again. She runs and she gets her him. She calls um, her husband over and she, she goes to introduce him to this man. And then we're back to calling this angel of God, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, as Manoah interacts with him. And what we see is the third proclamation of the ministry of Samson. It's been repeated three times now. This is God's plan at God's time through the, through the man that God chooses. And then it gets interesting at verse 15. So let's read from there, 15 to 23. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. All caps, right? Offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. And then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would have not accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us all these things. So Manoah does what his wife wouldn't do, doesn't he? He learns a lesson in doing so that we should all take note of as well. And that is simply that God, in his freedom, keeps things from us sometimes. It's his right. He doesn't always have to tell us how his plans are working. You'll experience that at some point in your life. Why God has this happened? Sometimes God, in his wisdom, decides not to let us know those things. And so here in this example, the angel of the Lord withholds some things. The angel of the Lord says, well, if I stay with you, he says, if you detain me, kind of funny, right? Like, can you detain the angel of the Lord? Yeah, you can't. Um, he's letting him think it's a possibility. He says, well, I won't eat your food. <laughs> but make an offering to Yahweh. And then Manoah does something else that his wife failed to do, and that is to ask his name. This is similar to when Jacob wrestled the angel of the Lord, actually. If you remember that, it's verse 29 in chapter 32. There, God withholds that information from him as well. 
But here with Manoah, he does the same thing. He says, you know, I'm, why do you ask me my name? But he does a little bit more with Manoah. A little bit, Revelation has progressed a little bit longer since Jacob, right? And so he says a little bit more. He says, don't you notice that it's wonderful? In other words, why do you want to know my name? Do you know that it's wonderful? We're made to think of Psalm 139.6 here. Sometimes we think of wonderful, we just think, oh, it's beautiful, it's great. And that, that's true, but it's actually meaning more than that. It's meaning you can't know me. <laughs> Why do you want to know my name? You can't actually know, you can't, you can't exhaustively know who I am. So Psalm 139.6 says, and this is, in the Psalm 139 is just a, a wonderful psalm, especially, I mean, they're all great, right? But 139, you should especially like, because it's, it, it, it's helpful, it's good. But anyways, it, it, he's, the psalmist is contemplating the knowledge and the greatness of God. And in verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's the classical definition of wonderful, to be full of wonder, rather than just a synonym for really cool. That's good, yeah. So, God's, well, Steve said it will. God's character, his nature is too much. It's beyond what we people could take in. It's beyond what we can understand. And we need to abide in the limits that Yahweh sets for us and to do so joyfully. This is the God who works wonders, as we read of in verse 18. And it doesn't mean that we can't know God. It means that even though we know God, we can't exhaustively know God. We can't fully know Him. He's too great. Our minds can't take it, especially in our fallen condition. But even as a new creation in Christ, which every Christian is, we are still that, a creation. God is the creator. It should humble us. This should bring us to a genuine humility. It should destroy our pride that a God who is this great, this wonderful, this beyond comprehension would let alone even interact with us, but would, would take us to the height of wonder and even love us. And even send his son to be born in the world and, and die for us. And so what do we do? We watch. We look to God. That's what Manoah and his wife are doing. They watch the angel of the Lord during the offering. And then they watch him ascend into the heavens where this miracle takes place. And the flame from the, on the altar goes all the way up into the heavens. And then the angel steps into it. And he's... I mean, if you, saw, if you see, like, Star Wars, it's like it's beamed up. It's almost what it comes across like. And so for us, our eyes are, are prone not to see such marvelous sights. But nevertheless, we look and watch for the Lord. We see him in his word when it's preached. We see him working through his body, the church. And in some way, these things are even greater, actually. I mean, we get to see them at least once every week every Sunday, and maybe even more times than that if you're coming here on a Wednesday and, and if you do other things throughout the week, if you're having family worship at home. But this is the, the means that God set up so that we may watch the Lord and look to him to see who he is, see what he's done through the preaching of his word, through the, through the gathering together with other saints on the Lord's day to encourage one another and lift one another up and worship together. And our response uh, should be the same as Manoah and his wife. You know, when they watch and look to the Lord, what do they do? They, again, I already said it, they worship. Once they realize that this was the angel of the Lord, that this was God, they fall to the ground. Their faces hit the ground, right? They, they worshiped here at the altar. And then Manoah has his sense come to him because he's kind of 
not really had his sense the way that he's been acting. He's act. He knows. He said, or he says, "We're going to die. <laughs> We've seen God. We're going to die." God told Moses that if he saw his face, he would die. Exodus thirty three twenty. Certainly, Manoah knew this. There is a real fear and reverence and respect and sober mindedness about the Lord that Manoah has that we should all have. One that is certainly missing from pulpits and churches today, and all the types of crazy that happens. But his wife, this nameless barren woman once again shows her wisdom. Manoah had a reverence for the Lord, certainly, but not the comfort. He had the fear, but not the joy. Manoah's wife had a proper balance of these things and a response that a a Christian should have. A right fear of the Lord that would prevent you from doing foolish things, that would help you to not sin, to not freely and willingly go into sin. And at the same time, a trust in the Lord because he has revealed his plan and will to you and you agree with it. That's essentially what she did, right? In a sense, response-wise, it's no different than when God shows us our sin. We agree with him because of the faith that he's given to us and then we trust in his plan of redemption and then worship him in light of it. This is very, it's a similar, same pattern. Manoah's nameless, barren wife gets it, but she won't be barren forever. Just like every person who is born again in Christ will bear fruit as well. And she has a son. So let's close and read the last two verses. Verses 24 and 25. It says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir, in, stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtoal. So that's, that's the start of this last judge in our book. The gospel according to Judges. The Lord blessed him. That's all we know of his youth. It's going to jump right into his adult life in chapter 14. This is the man God is choosing to use to save Israel at this time and according to his plan. And may we be reminded of our salvation from sin and the judgment we deserve and how it has also been paid for and accomplished by his will and his plan in his beloved son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify your holy name and we pray for strength to do that. Uh, Lord, let our whole lives be glorifying to you. Turn us from a number of different things. First off, Lord, turn us from the sin in our life that remains. Help us by grace to put it to death that we might glorify you with the choices that we make and the decisions to to do the right thing and the decisions to not do the right thing. And help us also to have a well-balanced, a well-rounded understanding of you. We know that we can't fully comprehend you. You are too wonderful, the classical sense of the, the term. But we ask that you would help us to not have an imbalanced view of you as well that would cause us to do things that uh, could be foolish. So we pray that you would help us to know you and in all of your glory. Help us to not try to remake you in a way that we like, Lord, but help us to watch and look to your word that we may know who you are and what is it you've done and give you glory for all of that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.